is a sad day for me because we have come to the end of the attitude, at least in this point of scripture, Jesus on the mountain. As we have mentioned, it has seven servants, seven servants looking at each slash blessedness, some of you have may been emotionally and spiritually uh, moved, even convicted as you were reminded of your need to wear these beatitudes like a badge, identifying who you are as a child of God. For some of you, it was a reawakening to your spiritual poverty apart from Jesus. While others who had become callous to certain sins were reminded that those who mourn over sins inwardly and outwardly are blessed. Some of you also may have been provoked to show greater levels of meekness and learn that biblical meekness is illustrated as having power under control. It's having the ability to overlook the sin and the evil, the maliciousness that was done against you personally, especially when you have the authority or or the power to do something about it, as Jesus had power to change the whole dynamics of what was happening on the cross, but he chose to be obedient to God, his Father. Also, Believe it or not, a couple of you may have been upset with dear old Pastor Mike when I exhorted you, I just simply exhorted you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why would you be mad at me? I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. I'm like a a middle guy, right? Um, uh, To live a righteous life is the fruit of what has been planted within us. It's what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 describes as being holy, being blameless before him. That's why you were chosen. That's why you were called, the called out ones. That's why you were blessed and granted his spirit that you may be convicted whenever sin comes. Then there were those of you who uh, may have made a profession to become more merciful when you were reminded of the benefits of being merciful. And in that sermon, I quoted Easton's Bible Dictionary's definition of mercy, which was compassion for the miserable. Compassion for the miserable. Then I took time to summarize the Bible's description of mercy and pointed us to Christ by showing how the atoning sacrifice of Christ was the ultimate exercise of mercy. It is in Christ that mercy and justice meet. Then we looked at the pure in heart. And we learned that a pure heart is a redeemed heart. A heart that has been gutted of its selfishness and pride and filled with the purity that the spirit of God gives graciously. And finally, we saw how the blessed are the peacemakers, the peacemakers. And personally, that was my favorite because it kept directing me back to the gospel, right back to the gospel. For me, it strengthened the reality that the gospel is a gospel of peace. 
taking me back to the time when I was at war with God through my ungodly behavior. But it was the gospel of peace that brought me peace with God and with the people of God. Towards the end of that sermon, I concluded that the good news that Jesus died for sinners is the only thing that brings true peace between God and man. And now we have come to the end, to the blessedness of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. One thing you can be sure of is if you live according to the principles of the first seven Beatitudes, inevitably you will be persecuted to the level in which you live them out. I have separated this last Beatitude into three parts. Part one, the promise of persecution. The promise of persecution. Part two, the people of persecution. And part three, the epitome of persecution. So at this time, I'll read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, page 809 in your pew Bibles. Beginning at verse 1, this is the holy word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for this is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please pray with me and for me. Father, as we open up your holy word, let us receive it with a desire to mature into the fullness of Christ. Increase our understanding and help your people to see beyond my weaknesses so they may be conformed magnificently to the image of your merciful and wonderful Son. To you be all the glory. Amen. Part one, the promise of persecution. According to the U.S. Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecutions from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because they choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. According to opendoors.org, 100 million Christians around the globe are currently suffering persecution for their faith. Now, this persecution ranges from imprisonment to the loss of income to abuses of all kinds. But in some cases, Christians are asked to face much more than prison or job loss. They are made to face death. And as we have seen, each beatitude built upon the previous beatitude, one may begin to wonder, why would those of such great character face such persecution. They're not trying to harm anyone. On the contrary, 
They're the very basis. Their very basis is to imitate Christ, which results in being a benefit to the entire human race. But Jesus gave us the foundational reason as to why persecution would come. It comes out of John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus said, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds, their works, the things they do are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's the bottom line. You're the light of the world, which is the next sermon by me. Whenever you're walking and talking righteousness, darkness is exposed. The Beatitudes are a reflection of Christ, who is the ultimate light of the world. People love darkness and hate the light. Thus, the light and everyone who loves the light must be silenced, persecuted, and even destroyed if necessary. <clears throat> That's why Jesus told his brothers of the flesh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. But then Jesus told the very ones that he loved, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the ecclesia, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world can't stand you. But in our text, Jesus says we're blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. How is that? Because ours is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same blessing that the poor in spirit receive. The kingdom. The kingdom. Now, as far as persecution is concerned, those who read, study, and meditate upon the word of God are not surprised at the persecution that comes their way. The Bible warned that persecution would come way before this sermon that Jesus gave. Right In Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, soon after Adam disobeyed God and brought death into the world, the promise of persecution for God's people was pronounced. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the Lord told the serpent slash Satan, I will put enmity, enmity, enmity. What, what is that? Hostility, animosity, opposition, dissension, rivalry, feud, conflicts, discord, contention, I will put that between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and I like the King James rendering, rendering of that. He will, he, will, he will bruise your head. He will crush your head, the King James said, and you will bruise his heel. God not only cursed the physical serpent by having him crawl on his belly, but God also curse the spiritual uh, serpent, the lying seducer, Satan. And this first gospel, the, the, the proto-evangel is prophetic of the struggle and its outcome between Satan and his offspring, which are unbelievers, and Eve's offspring, specifically Jesus the Christ. In the midst of this passage where the curse is pronounced, 
a message of hope came forth. Christ will defeat the serpent. Satan will only bruise Christ's heel. He will cause him to suffer on the cross while Christ will crush his head, meaning destroy him with a crushing blow through his death, paying for the sins of those who believe in him, and his resurrection, his victory over death. So here's why we read, here's why we uh, study, here's why we meditate upon the word of God, to always be mindful that Christ is the main character and fulfillment of everything of the Bible. Through the highs and the lows of scripture, we learn to lean on the Savior more and more. We take our time, we pause, we reflect, we sila, and we look at the word of God and we say, thank you, Lord, God. You are my treasure. I see you as I'm reading these, 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 these historical narratives of scripture. And I am more devoted to you because you are my God. And you gave this to me for a purpose. That I may rest in you. The promise of hostility that we were given. The promise of hostility between the righteous seed of the woman and the ungodly seed of Satan will be fulfilled. There will be hostility, contention, dissension, feuding, rivalry. There will be these things because you are the light that they can't stand. However, if you're saying to yourself right now, I have no problem with anyone. People love me and I'm a Christian. Let me just say one thing. You will get along wonderfully with most people if nobody ever finds out you're a Christian, if, if the only time you speak about Jesus is on Sunday mornings in these four walls, you will think you're blessed. You will think that this, is, this Christianity thing is great. If the only time you engage in spiritual conversations is for a couple of hours in the midst of church folk, this text will have no bearing on your life. But as I said in the opening, if ever, if ever in your day-to-day -day life you begin to manifest Beatitudes 1 through 7, to the degree that you manifest the Beatitudes, you will find out quickly that the sons of the flesh, the unbelievers will always find a reason to persecute you, to speak evil of you, to mock you, to separate from you, to raise up others against you. It doesn't matter how much you try to love them with the love of Christ. There will be antagonism and animosity, enmity. Enmity was promised and enmity there will be. There was never anyone more loving or a greater peacemaker than Jesus the Christ. Some people responded to him by believing and being transformed, but for the most part, Jesus continuously faced opposition, perhaps even from the very ones he fed. Perhaps even they were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because he spoke of righteousness and confronted sin. Should we expect it to be any different for those who follow him? Thomas Watson, Matthew's favorite, the Puritan writer, perceived this, and then he wrote, Though Christ died to take away the curse from us, yet not to take away the cross from us, 
Those stones which are cut out for a building are first under the saw and hammer to be hewed and squared. The godly are called living stones, and they must be hewn and polished by the persecutor's hand that they may be fit for the heavenly building. The saints have no charter of exemption from trials. Though they be ever so meek, merciful, pure in heart, their piety will not shield them from sufferings. Set it down as a maxim, if you will follow Christ, you will see the swords and staves. Put the cross in your creed. End quote. If we were to track the course of the righteous throughout history, we would see that they have always been persecuted for righteousness sake. It started. It started when righteous Abel was murdered by his ungodly brother who simply could not tolerate his righteousness. He couldn't stand to see Abel do what everyone who has a pure heart given by the Holy Spirit of Christ does is give their best to God. We're called to give an offering. We give our best to God. We don't give him the leftovers. We don't give him the lint from our pockets. We give him what he deserves. We are called to be living sacrifices. Every moment of the day, what does God deserve? He deserves your tongue to speak love and kindness, correction and rebuke out of love. He expects your walk to be one that he has instilled and taught you. Not of your flesh. You've been doing that too long. I've been doing that too long. We are called to give God our best. This brings us to part two. The people of persecution. The people of persecution. In First Peter, by the way, don't get happy because part one was short. Part one was short. So don't get happy thinking they're all going to be short. This is the longest one. And then I'll give you a break on part three. In First Peter chapter four... <clears throat> Verses 12 to 14, the Apostle Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. These words were written to bring awareness and comfort to those elect exiles of the dispersion in, in, in Pontus, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Asia, and the surrounding regions. They were, they were confused and discouraged people. Confused and discouraged by the persecution they were encountering simply because they wanted to follow Christ. With his choice of words, the Spirit of God may have been using Peter to recall the time of Jesus' baptism when he was about to enter into his ministry. And knowing this would bring suffer, suffering from mere men and persecution, the Spirit of God descended and rest, rested upon the Savior. And here it is, Peter. He's reminding them, I believe, of that moment. And as they have entered into their ministry, he lets them know the very same thing that Jesus received and happened to him is going to happen to you as you will receive the Spirit of God. And he will rest upon you as you need him to be faithful through persecution. Left to ourselves, we would turn back. Left to ourselves, we couldn't keep going through the trials, through the turmoil, 
through the name calling, through the separation and isolation, the things that we suffer for Christ's righteousness. It's like he's saying, it's like Peter was saying to these people, remember how the Spirit of God rested upon Jesus to prepare him for the persecution he would receive? In like manner, you're blessed because that same spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. The promise is that God will impart his spirit to us in proportion to our sufferings, just as he did for Jesus, his beloved son. This is how we are able to rejoice and be glad in the midst of our sufferings. This is how the persecuted are sustained in their trials. John Fox wrote a book listing the suffering many followers of Christ endured over a period of about 1,500 years after the death of Christ. <clears throat> According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, the tyrants and workers of Satan were not content with death only. To merely snatch the life from the body, that wasn't enough. There were so many diverse kinds of death, all of them horrible. Whatsoever cruelness man could invent, Fox says, they devised for those who loved Christ. From whippings and scourgings to drownings and stoning. Moreover, often when they were killed, their bodies were laid in heaps. And guard dogs were placed there just in case anybody wanted to bury their loved ones. You couldn't do it. Just in case you saw your child, your wife, your husband over there piled on a heap. Killed because he loved Christ. Stoned, you couldn't touch them. As an example, they needed those dead bodies to be there so that you would recant your testimony. That's persecution. Fox shares many detailed instances, instances with names and dates, but I believe you get the picture, so I won't keep on with that. But after sharing all of these names and dates of the persecuted martyrs, Fox ends by saying, and yet, notwithstanding all these continual persecutions and horrible punishments, the church daily increased. Deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles and watered plenteously with the blood of saints, end quote. All of these are horrific acts of persecution, but not all persecution is physical. Not all persecution touches the physical Body. Some are mental. Some are emotional. Think of Sam Rutherford. Rutherford was one of the best preachers Scotland had ever heard or seen. However, in 1630, life got real hard. His wife died, the apple of his eye. He lost two children. His church wasn't exploding. Some people, they, they, they judge their ministry by how many people come in and the, 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 the pews are filled and I'm doing great. All of that was happening to this lovely shepherd, expositor of the word, faithful man. But in spite, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the smallness of his church, the church he ministered in, Rutherford was never discontent, discontent and he never sought a bigger ministry. He said, God's own hand planted me here and here I will abide till the great master of the vineyard think fit to transplant me. Transplanted he would be, but not the way he thought, not in a manner he anticipated. In 1636, he wrote a book 
The name of the book was An Apology, meaning argument, an argument for divine grace. The book spoke out against the weak theology of the day and aroused the opposition and anger of the archbishop. So what did they do? What they always did. They called a council, they tried him, and found him guilty. But the punishment wasn't death. It wasn't even imprisonment. They banished him to Aberdeen, another city about 100 miles northeast of where he was. And he was warned, don't come back. Don't ever step foot in here again. He became known as the banished minister. Although he wasn't in prison, although he wasn't made to suffer physically, his sufferings, his greatest suffering to that point was being exiled from his church, his sheep, his lambs. He was no longer able to preach to those he loved. That was his persecution. As persecution for righteousness sake comes in many forms. <clears throat> in verse 10 of our text, Jesus said, blessed are those. But in verse 11, he said, blessed are you, making it personal. And although he says blessed twice, I believe this is one beatitude because there is only one result. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the question remains, if only one beatitude is in view, why does Jesus use the word blessed twice? I believe it's because God gives an extra blessing to those who suffer tremendously and are persecuted brutally for his name's sake. The writer of Hebrews seems to confirm this in chapter 11, 11, beginning at verse 32. If you will turn there with me for a moment. Hebrews 11 and verse 32, page 1008, if you're using the Pew Bibles. He writes, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to, to flight, victory after victory. After victory by the power of God. Great. But now we begin to take a slight turn. Verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Refusing to accept release. So that they might rise again to a better life. Those who were tortured here. Chose to refuse escaping torture. So they may dwell in peace in the presence of of God. But this next group had no choice. Verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Although in one sense, the world is not worthy of any blood-bought believer. But I believe this scripture right here speaks to 
severely persecuted believers who bear a greater resemblance of entering into Christ's sufferings. The world was not worthy of them. Fight me on that if you want later. Not right now. But this double blessing comes to those who identify even more with Christ, I believe, through bloodshed. Just as the world was not worthy of the very ones they persecuted. Jesus the Christ. John 1.11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All who believe in the Lord are called to look to him through the trials, through the hurt, through the persecution. We're called to look to the author and finisher, founder and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because it was for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross. Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Following his example is how we learn to persevere. Considering him, watching him, imitating him. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews 5 verse 8. Jesus is the son of God, yes. He is the son of God, but he is also the son of man. Truly God, truly man. Through his incarnation, he humbled himself to the point of learning as we learn. This is why when he was a child, Luke 2 and 52 tells us he increased in wisdom. Why would the majestic, all-knowing son of God humble himself to become the son of man, placing himself in a state where he needed to learn? Three reasons. Three reasons. I have three reasons for you. Probably more, but for lack of time. Three right now. Number one, to confirm his humanity by experiencing its sufferings to the fullest. To confirm his humanity by experiencing its sufferings to the fullest. Reason number two, to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. And reason number three, to become the Source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. To become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's Hebrews 5 and verse 9. So we follow his example. Knowing that whatever trial comes our way, it's only going to grant us a greater assurance that we belong to our Savior. For those who are suffering through persecution at this very moment, let me encourage you by sharing five reasons, five reasons God allows and creates suffering in our lives. And I know it's not popular to say that God creates suffering, but I'm not trying to be popular. I'm trying to be accurate. One reason we suffer through persecution is, number one, to be humbled. To be humbled. Suffering humbles us. Suffering reminds us of our humanity and our finiteness. When we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, we are reminded that we are not in control of our lives. No matter how smart you are, no matter how much money you have, 
you are not in control of your life. So what God does is he lovingly uses persecution to cure our pride, to knock us down a notch, to take us down, that we may cry out to him. Isaiah 57 and verse 15, for the humble will dwell with God. The humble will dwell with God. We are called to wear humility like a robe. And unfortunately, yes, many times it comes through suffering, through persecution. Secondly, suffering draws us nearer to God. Pain and suffering uh, causes us to run to God with our need. When we realize that we are not in control and that our lives are nothing but a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, James 4.14, we cry out to God. We cling to the God of our heaven, who alone is our rock, who alone is our sure foundation. The more we suffer, the more we cling. The more pain comes, the more we cling. Thirdly, persecution reminds us that this world is not our home. Being persecuted for righteousness sake works to create within us a longing for our heavenly home. When those we trusted in with our whole hearts turn, we recognize, well, I didn't feel right when I was doing the things with them that I was doing and now they're not with me. So I see this is not my home. Why am I trying to appease man? Why am I trying to please my family when they're living ungodly? It's just not right within me. So they separate. Lord, I understand now. Lord, I see this is not my home. Although I was born into this family, I just can't do the things they do. It took me so long to learn that. But when you got it, you got it. You understand God chose you out. Maybe it's been a long history of people who do not want God. And you look at your ancestors and God said you. God took his hook like the shepherd's staff and pulled you and pulled you. There's an awesome book, The, the Shepherd of the 23rd Psalms. And this is uh, speaking about a pastor who's really a shepherd in Ireland. And he would tell about his sheep. And he would have a couple of sheep who, no matter how much water they drunk, if they heard some rapid rivers going, they would just veer off. It's just, it was just instinct, not thirsty, but just instinct. They would, it, they would veer off. But the problem about the, the bubbling brook and the uh, uh, rushing rapids is that many times they were on a bank. And what would happen is these sheep, who are not too bright, um, would go and their hind legs would be higher than their front legs. And as the, the, the water is rushing and it's going around their coat, it's getting heavier. And what they would do is they would tip over into the rushing rapids. And so that staff, he would have to go and gently put it around their neck and pull them back and pull them back and pull them back. Not being too bright, they would just keep following one another, these couple of sheep. But he would just do that, get them in Line And this is what God has to do with so many of us. 
right? Many of us are wor- walking in holiness and righteousness, and then every once in a while we will hear the babbling brook of the world calling us this way. And God, out of his love, takes that hook. Come back. Come back. We don't like it. Some of us will fight it. And so we have to yank. We definitely don't like that. Then he has to spank. And we don't like that. But as we grow in the Lord, we recognize we needed it. We needed to get back with the rest of the flock. We needed to come back to our Lord and our Savior. Suffering shocks us into remembering we are temporary residents and foreigners on this earth. 1 Peter 2.11. This is not our home. We should be looking forward to our home with God. Fourthly, persecution trains us in righteousness. God often uses persecution and suffering to train us and discipline us as his children. He wants us to mature in our faith. And some of us know that we should be further along than we are. Some of us know we still need to be spoon-fed the word of God. He wants us to read Psalms 1. I don't understand Psalms 1. Some of us have been in church 12, 15 years, and it's like, here you go. Let me explain it to you. Uh, let, me, let me fix it for you. And, and what? I don't, the wicked do what? What? And we should be so much further along. And the writer of Hebrews He can't stress it enough how these people should be able to rightly divide the meat, pick it up with a fork, and process it through their mouth and chew and chew and digest it. But they can barely drink Similac. And that's a problem. That is a problem. And and, and in chapter 12, verses 5 to 7 and verse 11, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves. And chastises who? Every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. You have to endure. God is treating you as a child, as his precious child. For what child is there whom his father does not discipline? And then verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, what does it do? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Pain. I don't like this. Why, God? I'm a child of the king. I should be blessed. I should have health and wealth and prosperity. You need discipline. You need training. You need chastising righteousness. Don't stay here. Look here. Pain for a purpose. Righteousness. We all love Romans 8.28, right? For those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called, to those who love God and are called, right, for his purpose. We love that until we're in it. Until it's happening. It's going to yield something. It's not wasted pain. Your isolation is not wasted isolation. God says, I am working out my purposes in you. I'm conforming you to the image of my beloved son. That he may be the first of many brethren. 
I'm taking you down this golden chain, down this path from being predestined to being called, to being justified, and to being glorified. When you read Romans 8, 28, keep going at least to verse 30. You will see the purpose. And the fifth reason God allows and creates persecution in our lives is to help us identify with Christ's sufferings. To help us identify with Christ's sufferings. I can't stress this enough. The scriptures point to how persecution, suffering, and loss on account of righteousness allows us to resemble Christ like nothing else. Like nothing else. In, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, it says, and it's the memory verse of the week. It's been up there for like three years, but it's the memory verse of the, of the week. First, I mean, Philippians chapter 3 and verse Verses 8 to 10. Verse 8 is up there, but I know everybody who's darkened those doors, at least for a year, knows it by heart. Um, indeed, it says, I count everything as laws. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything as laws? It's hard. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, in case you missed it the first time, and count them as scubalon, as rubbish, as dung. As dog poop. It, it means nothing to me in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I've been through that before. It didn't work. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, in his death. The Apostle Paul, right, who suffered for Christ's sake much more than the average Christian, told the members of the church at Philippi to look at him as a mini example compared to Christ of what to expect when you're following the righteousness of Christ. He said, for Christ's sake, he gave up everything and counted them as Dumb. All of that stuff, the prestige of a Pharisee, the money of a Pharisee, the clout of a Pharisee, the ability to round up some people and throw them in, in jail, that power, and everything else that came with it, I gave it up. It's not about the law. It's by faith, by faith in Christ. The church at Philippi was coming under tremendous fire. From their adversaries. So in chapter 1, Paul tried to encourage and exhorted them, exhort them to not be frightened by anything from your opponents, because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That was Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 to 30 if anybody wanted to know. In other words, Paul is saying when our adversaries come against us, hating the gospel, hating the Christ within us, it is a sign of both of our destinies. It's evidence of our salvation 
yet at the same time, it's providing proof that they are bound for health. We should not be worried, and we should not be fearful. Even when it comes from the, those closest to us, like family, who persist in their attacks against us, we should not be anxious or depressed. If our loved ones now believe that we are out of our minds, that we are so far gone, that we have been brainwashed, indoctrinated, just being abused by that pastor who wants you to be his slave. No, no, no. Jesus' family, according to Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, thought he was out of his mind. We have a good example, a good representative of persevering. Although those who know us thought they knew us the best. Psalm chapter 1, the church's weekly reading. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands to ask if you uh, read it or shared it with someone. That's for you to work out with the Lord. That's for you to go through in your mind, right? But what Psalm chapter 1 does is it shows the separation and distinction between the righteous and the wicked. This psalm confirms that those who follow the ways of the Lord by heeding his laws are not crazy. You are not the weird ones. They're actually blessed. As it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, right? But what is his delight? His delight is the law of the Lord in which he meditates day and night. Day and night. Stop. Pause. Read. Lord, God, you are so good. I'm not talking about five chapters of deep theological studies. But this, this, I believe the psalmist is, is saying each word of God is so precious that you, take, you, you can't take the whole thing. You take it in bite-sized chunks. And you, you, you take a verse or five verses and you stop. And instead of skipping through, you pause and you swim. You float. For some reason, I can't float. It's weird. But anyway, you, you stop and you, you pause and you, you, you stay there. You stay there until you got it. And then out of love, you call someone up and say, you know what? I've been reading Psalm chapter 1. I, and it's so good. I read it a hundred times, but I stopped. I stopped in that first verse. And I said, you know what? I have too many people in my life that I am following that I should not be following because whether you know it or not, the more time you spend in conversation with someone who is not going your way, it doesn't have to be, and most likely it's not a drastic term, but it's just a little increment that keeps you going like this. And then you look down and say, how did I get here? That's what the psalmist is saying. You don't walk in that type of counsel. You don't, you don't, you don't give that uh, 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 speech room. In your heart, you, you, you don't do that. The Apostle Paul spoke about that. The psalmist, David, spoke about that, right? We want to be like that tree that's planted by streams of waters, right? That yields its fruit in due season. 
That's what happens when you have a tree by the rivers, right? Those roots are getting nourished. That's what happens when you have a Christian near, near the law of God, near the word of God. He gets nourished. He's, he gets strengthened. And he stays in the word and he says, wow, I am nothing like what I used to be. How did that happen? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Arthur Pink said it well when he wrote, it is a strong proof of man's depravity that God's blessing and men's curses should meet upon the same person. That's amazing. The same person that says uh, uh, God is great and is being blessed by God is cursed by those who hate God. That same person. And this is God's design. We who are like Christ will be loved by God and by believers yet hated by the world. And according to the rest of Psalm 1, the wicked and depraved do not delight in the law of God nor meditate day and night on it. So instead of being like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in due season, they are like chaff that's driven away whenever the wind blows. What's the new doctrine for the culture? They flow right along with it. The Christian who's not grounded in the word flows right with them. This is what we need to be doing. What about Jesus? What about eternity? What about this is not our home? Why am I rooted in this world? These things should come to our mind. Part three, the epitome of persecution. Going back to the promise of persecution from Genesis 3, the cruelest and most vile persecution that ever took place was the persecution and suffering that was endured by Jesus the Christ on the cross. In Jesus' persecution, what, what you get is, is the preeminent offspring of the woman persecuted unto death death by the offspring of Satan, wicked men. Isaiah 53, which was covered by Matt for the past two Sundays in Sunday school, describes the suffering and persecution Jesus would take upon himself as a substitution for wicked men. If you will, turn with me to Psalm Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Page 613 in your pew Bibles. We'll pick it up briefly from verse 1. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no Beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Stop here for a minute. One reason Christ was rejected as the Messiah was because he did not come with the beauty, splendor, or majesty of a king. On the contrary, he was born in a filthy environment where animals were fed and dwelled among the poor common folk. They didn't consider him to be worthy and turned away from him as someone detestable. The same way we all turned away from him before the spirit of God granted us eyes to behold his beauty. But as we continue in verse 5, we find out the reason for his passion, the reason why he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God through the substitutionary atonement. Continuing from Isaiah 53 and 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Our righteousness, which was his passion, led to him sacrificially, substituting himself to atone for our sins. But unfortunately, the misguided and emotion-led call the substitutionary atonement of Christ evil and off-base because they could never imagine a God who was all about love punishing his son with such a horrific and humiliating death upon a wooden cross. But in actuality, this is the epitome of love. The epitome of persecution revealed the epitome of love the father and son have for the children of God. Verse 6 tells us all of us were like sheep gone astray. Every one of us turned to our own way. We were not basically good people. So the Lord, verse 6 tells us, had to lay on him the iniquity of us all. Who did what? God the Father has laid on him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. For what reason did he do it? That by his stripes we would be healed from the effects and consequences of sin, which is judgment. Judgment leading to death and hell, eternal damnation in the lake of fire. In Jesus giving his life on the cross, the supreme example of love met the supreme example of suffering. Not that no one else ever suffered on the cross, but no one ever met the full wrath of God on the cross. He took the full payment, the full punishment for all who would ever be saved. That's why we love him. That's why he is more than worthy of our worship. And that's why we need the grace that only Christ can provide through his sanctifying work on the cross. Perhaps it would change our perspective of what's happening to us into the reality that it's really what's happening for us. As all things are working together for good, right? For those who love him, that's key. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose, not our purpose. Jesus says, look at me, right? Look at me, compare your persecution to my persecution and see that what happened to me is the epitome of suffering. Now rejoice and be glad, knowing who I am and what I've done for you. Towards the end of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12, I need you to understand in our text that the words be glad in the original is the Greek word agaliasta, agaliasta. The words be glad give no justice to what that word really means. It's it's, it's, it's like like, uh, someone shouting and, 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 and jumping for joy. 
as some great victory. It's like a mountain climber, an experienced mountain climber. He sees this mountain that's higher than any mountain he's ever climbed, and he gets to the top, and he shouts, and he yells, I did it, I did it. It's a word of jubilation. We see it again in Revelation 19 and verse 7, right, where John says, let us rejoice and agaliaste, exult. And give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We will be raising our arms in jubilation and victory at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus says, because of that, rejoice now. Be be glad now. And he ends the Beatitudes by promising our reward in heaven is palos. Great. Plenteous. Abundant. It's more than we can ever Think of or imagine. Why? Because of what he's done. All of our pain is temporary and will be forgotten. But all of our joy is eternal and will never be removed. And then Jesus mentions a reward. What is that reward? Colossians 3 verses 23 to 24 tells us, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You will receive the inheritance as your reward. Our reward is that we will inherit the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the new heavens and the new earth where nothing but righteousness dwells for all eternity. Rejoice and be glad. And I'll end with this. When Charles Spurgeon was severely depressed over the criticism he received in his ministry. Yes, Charles Spurgeon received criticism in his ministry. Some of us think, no, he just walked by it. No. What happened is his wife, Susanna, who would have her own physical challenges come upon her, what she did is she printed all eight Beatitudes on a large piece of paper and tacked it to the ceiling in their bedroom over their bed so that the first thing Charles would see when he wake up is the righteous will suffer persecution. And the last thing he saw at night is the righteous will suffer persecution. Rejoice and be glad. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your goodness, your providence, your sovereignty, your craftsmanship, and your steady hand. You are careful to shape us and scrape us until we become the exact model you intended. All chastening, all discipline and correction seems painful in the moment, but in the end it yields a perfect fruit of righteousness that pleases and blesses you throughout all eternity. Amen. Amen.